All right. 2 Samuel, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with them, each his family, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David, king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messages to them, saying, say, to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zehuiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it. Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zechariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through the back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped where he came when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, 
And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah, near Gia, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them all until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the son, the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first, firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahnoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmal, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Well, good evening. My name is James. Great to have you here, particularly if you're new, if you're with us for the first time tonight. Thank you, Helen, for that marathon reading. It's great. Well, as those who are commanded by God to pray for our leaders and to be the very best of citizens. It's hard to know what to make of the current political landscape, isn't it? The very same news report will tell us of enduring, sacrificial, wise responses to a, a great trying season and then show us parliamentarians who are deeply corrupt walking out of the same building on their way to prison. What are we to make of that? Is it any wonder that we as a culture struggle at times to lift above cynicism and produce a wholesale interest in going into politics? I can't remember a single mate as I grew up or a single student that I taught as a high school teacher ever expressing a desire to go into local or state or national politics. And yet we need leaders, don't we? Not just there, but in the home. At, in business, at school, at uni, at church. We need leadership. Where do we look? When we open God's word and we look closely at Saul and David, at Joab, at Abner, what do we find? We find exactly the same complexity, sometimes deep contradictions. These, are not, these aren't cartoon characters, are they? They are historic figures. We're not dealing in goodies and baddies here, but real people who need to make decisions in their day, in their time, 
with the power and influence that they have. Sometimes it's a good decision, but oftentimes it's not. The difference is we actually don't know how the next chapter in Australian politics will play out, but we do know what happens in 1 and 2 Samuel. We know where this story is going. and We know to whom it is pointing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we're worshipping tonight. As we'll see tonight, there are two models of leadership given us here, and Jesus is reflected in the first, and like David, he is going to have to face the second. The first is godly leadership. It's patient. It's prayerful. It acknowledges God's sovereignty. It makes peace with enemies, and it feeds the future. Godly leadership blesses today, and it feeds the future. But the second is ungodly leadership. It's impatient, it's self-serving, it breeds war, and sure enough, it fails the future. Well, let's look at that first one. Godly leadership blesses today, and it feeds the future. We come out of that lament in chapter 1 with a deep sense, don't we, of David's grief for a fallen king, a lost friend and a shamed nation. We have here a leader with heart who teaches his people how to sing, how to respond with godly grief to that which is grievous. All the way through 1 Samuel, we have seen in David a great restraint and it continues here. Verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. In the course of time. It allows, doesn't it, the grief of chapter 1 just to settle. And it points to David as a man who's patient in taking that next step. I think even now we might naturally sort of think, here's now's the time for the large manoeuvre, the decisive strike of the soldier. But what does he do? He prays. He inquires of the Lord. Here we have a leader with a Lord. We've got a king-to-be who knows his sovereign and he wants to know that sovereign's will. So if you have authority in any sphere, if you're a leader in any place or form, does that describe you or me? A leader with a Lord, one greater, wiser, stronger than you, whom you seek in prayer. Or is it all on you? Are you a truly alone at the top of the heap? You're the smartest guy in the room. You're the top woman at the table. There is no higher office. You're it. Friends, all leadership is weighty. But that is no way to carry that weight. My dad was a, a top gynaecologist and obstetrician. He was highly trained in women's reproductive health. He delivered thousands of babies. Uh, if you were born before 1985, chances are he delivered you or your mum or dad Perhaps both. I've already been connect, you know, uh, sort of uh, told today by a number of people that uh, my dad delivered them. He was a senior man at a senior hospital, but he was also known to be a man of God. 
And talking to one of his theatre nurses recently, she said that within the intensity of theatre, in those delivery uh, wards where it is a life and death matter, it was not unusual if something was going wrong, if there were grave complications for my dad, Dr Macbeth, just to break the rhythm of what was happening briefly and to wait. To the uninitiated, he was just gathering his thoughts. He was drawing breath. But to those who knew him, his closest team, they knew that he was praying. Not out loud, not in any flashy way. He was simply asking for wisdom and help. It was done briefly but significantly and then it was back on. I've often reflected on that. In that room, in that theatre, Dad was king. He was master. He called the shots with the team all around him. It took immense courage to those that knew him best to know that he was asking one greater than him for wisdom. Even with all his training and all his giftedness, he needed help. Are you that sort of leader? A leader with a Lord. I think I'm at my best when I'm prayerful. There is so much to do as leaders and we are heading as a church into one of the most intense and strange periods of transition that we've ever known. There's so much to do, isn't there? But if our first reflex is not to pray, then I fear that much of what we do is wasted or ill-begun. I think I'm at my best and most effective as a dad, as a husband, as a minister, when I am holding those under my care before the Lord. And perhaps even better, bringing them with me, be it my family or us as a church, together before God with freedom and with confidence that come through Christ. Are we those sort of leaders? Because David was. He asked the Lord to lead him and the Lord leads him to Hebron. Hebron had immense significance for God's people. It was there in Genesis 13 that Abraham set his tents by the great trees, the great oaks of Mamre. It was there in Genesis 18 that he received three visitors from God who told him that Sarah would bear a son. And it was there in Hebron that he eventually buried Sarah. Hebron was the only piece of the promised land that, that Abraham ever owned during his lifetime. It was a cave and a field, a tiny little down payment on God's promise that was to be fulfilled under Joshua all those years later. And here with David, his chosen king to come, he sends him to begin his great journey to the throne at Hebron marking the continuity of God's unfolding plan all the way from Abraham up to this moment and David. The patient, prayerful leader with a heavenly Lord is not afraid to start small and build carefully in God's time and God's manner. David knows the crown is his, but even here he doesn't assert himself, does he? Once settled in Hebron, we're told that the men of Judah anointed him king over Judah. He receives the crown from them. And what's his first recorded act as a king? Is it again, pick up the sword and go hard? No. It's peacemaking. A decisive peace with potential enemies. 
the men of Jabesh Gilead might have assumed that David was their enemy because they had honoured the body of Saul. And yet they receive a very different message, don't they? The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you've done this. Now then, be strong and brave. For Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Here is true peacemaking. It's, not a, it's a peace that's not just the absence of war or the end of conflict. It's a positive, healthy, growing relationship marked by the Lord's blessing, the king's favour, and a call to bring their strength and courage to bear on David's cause now. Godly leadership blesses today. It also builds carefully and slowly for the future. And that's what David's doing, isn't it? With patience and prayer, assured that God is the author of this story that stretches all the way back to Abraham. A story that we know stretches all the way forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So part two tonight. Jesus, the patient, prayerful king. We were reminded last week, weren't we, that in David, God is laying down a template for kingship that Jesus will one day step into and fulfill. The patience we see in David, it's even more evident in Jesus. The parallels are striking. As I thought about it this week, I was again struck with the fact that Jesus' public ministry starts around about the age of 30. Now, according to our logic or anyone else's logic, if God came in the flesh as we have seen in Jesus, wouldn't you have him on in full action every day from day one? And yet that's not how it happens, is it? Jesus starts small, literally, as a baby born in Bethlehem. He grows as a baby, as a child, as an adolescent, as a young man, years about which we know almost nothing until he is baptised and his ministry begins. And in the last term, we've been unpacking the early parts of that ministry in John 1-4. Here is David's Lord revealing that same patient, deliberate action that has marked the Lord's forbearance and sovereign timing from the beginning. In Jesus, he starts small before he builds further, just as he did with Abraham, just as he does with David. Have you ever noticed the very first verse in the New Testament? It's Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The great relay between these two key figures has found its final runner in Jesus. Like David, he's prayerful frequently withdrawing to pray and teaching his disciples to come with him before God as Father. Here is a Lord who serves another, a son who's always about his father's work. He loves his father's will, even when that will is very, very costly, because he knows it's good. In Jesus, we've got a king who is the ultimate peacemaker, blessing his enemies and bringing them bringing us into his family and his cause 
just as we see with the men of Jabesh Gilead. We know from John 1 and Hebrews 1, Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of everything. He is the heir to all things. Yet he doesn't come and grasp at that glory, does he? Like David, he doesn't lunge for the crown, but he waits. He waits until it's given. As we press deeper into 2 Samuel, we will see David glorified in a sense, given the whole nation, unified under him as king. That will be a small and significant marker of the much larger royalty to come. We're told in Philippians 2, up in the New Testament, Paul writes this of Jesus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Well, before Jesus reaches that throne, he will have to face the worst darkness, the greatest opposition. And so too David, on that long road to the throne, to that crown, must face concerted opposition and rebellion. And that brings us to part three. Ungodly leadership darkens the day and it fails the future. After the patient, careful peacemaking work of David in verses four to seven, the shift to Abner in verses eight and nine is stark, isn't it? Here is a great soldier. This is Saul's general, a man with immense influence. What will he do with his power at this moment in Israel's history? It's clear from 2 Samuel 3 verse 9 and 18 that Abner knows the Lord has chosen David as king and to be the rescuer of his people. And yet here in chapter 2 he deliberately sets himself against David and the Lord by setting up Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as king. Friends, here is the essential perversity of sin that knows the right but willingly does the wrong. That thinks that we can get away with it or, or somehow just rewrite the terms that God has set. We cannot. It is this sort of perversity that destroyed Saul. He knew the right, but he willingly did the wrong. Brothers and sisters, whether you're in leadership or not, let me ask you this tonight. Are you doing things that you know, you know, grieve the Lord? That he has clearly said this is not right. Stop it. Stop. Today, turn around and repent. Put yourself into the arms, into the hands of a great, forgiving, heavenly Father. Do not be like Saul or Abner who knew the right and willingly, determinedly did the wrong, hoping that it was going to somehow turn out differently. Not only does Abner not seek the Lord or sin under him, Ishbosheth is little more than a puppet monarch. The real power lies with Abner, and we'll see that next week. As the real ruler, he doesn't seek peace, but war. And in verse 12 onwards, he seeks out David's forces under Joab. What follows is civil war. 
Uh, most historians and those who have been involved with them have argued that all war is terrible, but there's something particularly dark and brutal about civil wars, when tribes or nations rip themselves apart. Perhaps it has something to do with the, the, the deeper wrongness of this, that those who should fight together are now fighting each other. And the scars and the wounds which mark a nation that does that, a tribe, a family, rarely heal or heal well, do they? The US Civil War between the North and the South uh, in 1861-65, to 65, involving a series of brutal campaigns, cost 750,000 lives. 2.5% of the nation's population died in that conflict. If it was replayed today over four years, seven million would be dead. I give those appalling statistics simply because no nation can possibly afford to lose so many young men and not be changed for the worse forever. The same might be said of Australia and the 60,000 we lost in World War I. I think we've never properly recovered. The civil war that breaks out here in 2 Samuel 2 is long and grievous, not only because this is God's chosen people fighting each other, but because of the cost to youth. If chapter 1 is a lament for the loss of Saul and Jonathan, chapter 2, or at least this part of it, is a lament for lost youth. At Abner's urging in verses 14, 16, they're used as these sort of proxies for both armies, some sort of brutal entertainment or sport. And Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, said Joab. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazurim, the field of daggers. There's no drawn out heroism, there's no description of the battle. It's a gigantic waste of life. It achieves nothing. It's vanity. And then after the battle, we get the pursuit of Abner by the young man Asahel, as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He is the embodiment of youth, isn't he? He's fast, he's courageous, he's headstrong. There's something beautiful about this young man at full stretch, the adrenaline up. But there's something also foolish, isn't it? He just doesn't heed the earnest warning of the older, more seasoned soldier. So here is a young man who should have in someone like Abner, an adult, a general, a leader, one who will honour his speed, will feed his courage and set right boundaries for his youthful folly, who will guard and protect this young man in his youth. But what do we have? Asahel dies at Abner's hands in a brutal manner. It's graphic. The moment when all stop in verse 23 at the spot where he dies and they're just looking at what has happened is as full of pathos and grief as any moment in the Old Testament, perhaps scripture as a whole. 
in a moment of great irony, it's Abner, the one who started this mess, who calls a halt to the ongoing pursuit in verse 26. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise this will end in bitterness? Doesn't he realise that the bitterness has already come and the sword will continue to devour? For now the battle and the pursuit ends. But there's nothing to celebrate here, is there? Only a long march through the night. And the lamentable fact of 360 Benjamites and 19 of David's young men dead to no good end. Impatient, ungodly, self-seeking leadership not only costs that leader in the end as it will Abner, but it darkens the day. It fails those who are led. David's leadership sought to build and feed the future by including others, but Abner's failed the future in the loss of young men on that field, on the, the mountains, hills of Gilboa. Here's the conflict and opposition that David had to face on his long road to the throne, not primarily from outside, but from inside, from Saul's house, his own people. It's a sobering chapter, isn't it? But did you notice the note of hope in the end? We deliberately read part into chapter 3. In 3 verse 1 we're told that David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker. And what follows in verses 2 to 5 is a listing of sons born to David in Hebron. Even as one leader wasted young lives, another is blessed with a whole generation coming through. Here is God's ability to breed new life and hope even in the midst of sin and death. It's the very thing that he does through his son Jesus, the ultimate king. Like David, the worst opposition that Jesus faces, it's not from the Gentiles, it's not from outside, it's from within his own people. We saw that, didn't we, in John chapter 1. He came to, his, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It is that civil war, that civil conflict that brings him to the cross and to his ultimate battle. He does battle with sin and death itself. All that stood between him and the crown, which was always his and waiting. It's because of his willingness to humble himself and go to that death, to face that conflict, that God raised him from the dead and exalted him above every name and gave us the king alive, risen, enthroned tonight, whom we are praising, whom we are glorifying in song, in prayer and in listening closely to his word. There's God breeding new life and hope even in the midst of sin and death. Here is that ultimate peacemaking with us, with you, with me. A peace that's not just the absence or the ending of war, but a positive relationship marked by our Lord's salvation and favour and a call to bring our strength, our courage, to the cause of Christ. Especially if we are leaders or leaders in the making. Well, in conclusion... 
Friends, if like me, you have committed your life to Jesus, we are people with a Lord. We are leaders who know our sovereign. Consider where you have authority and influence, where you are leading in some sense, especially at home or at church. Are we building and feeding the future? Are we making deliberate provision for kids and youth to grow in godliness? With all their speed, all their courage, but all their headstrong folly at times. Are we men and women worth following who are guarding those to come, providing them space to explore, to take risks, to try new things, all so that they might come into adulthood in a mature faith alongside us? Does that describe your leadership and mine? Or are we too busy? too distracted, too concerned with today to worry about tomorrow and those who are coming up fast behind us? Are we creating conflict rather than peacemaking? If so, then beware the path of Abner, the rebellious self-centred man who fought God and his anointed one and failed the future. Look instead to David and all the more to Jesus. Leaders who are patient and prayerful, seeking the Father's will and glory, peacemaking with enemies and feeding the future. Amen. Well, welcome back and thanks James for opening up 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2 for us tonight. It's been such uh, a beautiful place for us to jump into and I'm looking forward to uh, next week and continuing on in the series. Mm. Uh, a lot of great questions have come in. The top question tonight is a question that is going to need a little bit more unpacking than is able to be done uh, just in a little post-sermon moment. So James will deal with that in Sermon Extra uh, later in the week. But James, we know that you take prayer uh, very seriously and prayer in the life of leaders very seriously. One of the little training modules we do with our MTSs is you actually take them through about six weeks of learning to pray deliberately and diligently. Just give us one tip, because that question is about prayer, just give us one tip for continuing on with a bold and confident prayer life in the rigours of leadership where it, you know, leadership can be relentless Prayer is sort of just me quietly by myself. How do I keep going and not leave it aside? Uh, life is messy. Life is complicated. Um, no one could have seen these last two years. I, what's been crucial for me, and I learned it from a wiser man, uh, my senior minister at Gymea, Reg Piper, is develop a discipline. I have a time, have a place, uh, have uh, those that you know that you are praying for. So you've got a foundation in each day uh, to pray and the Lord will give you time and space to pray for other things as well and other people that will come to mind. Yeah. But develop a rhythm, a discipline that is non-negotiable. Uh, not that it's so locked in that you're, the day falls apart if you don't do it, but uh, it's a discipline that becomes a delight in my experience. So, um, but I'll say more about that in the, um, the sermon extra. But uh, yeah, I really, uh, as a leader and as those over leaders, I'd love to see that rhythm of prayer that makes it core to who we are. Yeah. Thanks, James. Um, next question we're going to go to is uh, one about leadership and sin. So a uh, question that says, are you saying that people in leadership should be sinless, which is impossible? We're not sinless perfectionists like some were 
uh, some time ago. How do you reconcile the right living of leaders with their sinful nature? Right. Who, do, yeah. who would dare to be a leader? We're going to see in 2 Samuel David fall terribly. The very guy that we've seen tonight, patient, prayerful, wise, uh, we will see by the end, which will be Easter next year, a man who fall terribly and yet is described in the last chapter of 2 Samuel as a man blameless. Blamelessness is not sinlessness. Blamelessness is much to be covered and desired and to be seen in God's people, whether you're a leader or not. Hmm. Blamelessness is a state where you are regularly taking your sin, for we are all sinners, to the Lord, confident of his forgiveness. So a blameless man or woman is one in whom the gospel is alive and running. So I want to end this weekend, start tomorrow, a blameless man. So part of my discipline, my daily discipline of prayer, is just clearing the decks with God. Mm. Is actually acknowledging the reality of my sin. I do have a number of, like, of prayers that I've written which acknowledge all sorts of sins, but I'm honest before that thinking about what was Sunday? You know? um, so I, blamelessness is what we want to see in each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but I think it's core to leadership. Uh, you should have every expectation of me as your minister to be a blameless man in whom the gospel is running. Um, so I think, yeah. yeah. That's uh, yeah. super helpful. It is, um, yeah, we're not expecting perfection. We are expecting people to come before the Lord regularly. Yeah, we're being yeah. perfected. There's a goal, yeah. there's a trajectory here. Yeah. God is at work. Um, but as, I think it humbles me as a leader to remember I am a sinner. I am very fragile and vulnerable on my own. But in Christ, I have a great forgiver and equipper. And so I've got to go to that throne of grace daily. Yeah. yeah. So last question, uh, just briefly. You might want to pick this one up again uh, during the week, but from Bron. She said, uh, what are some of the greatest spiritual attacks or enemies that we should be aware of when in a leadership role? So knowing that we're working at being blameless, what are those spiritual attacks or enemies that we should be aware of in uh, leadership? Yeah, there's yeah. a whole heap. I think, um, I think pride you know, being overly proud of what we are and who we are. Um, leadership more often not is conferred. We don't just grow into it. It's mm. given. So it's a very great thing for uh, people to give you leadership. And yet we know in Christ we're there to serve them, not to lord it over them. Um, I think, too, there's a danger, particularly if we're weary, we're busy, where there's a lot on, to be merely dutiful, if I can mm. say it that way. Uh, I took uh, some of our community leaders on Monday night through 1 Peter 5, which is a word to shepherds. They say, be shepherds over God's flock. Um, do so because you are willing, not because you are must. He wants us to decide to serve, even against the grain of our prevailing weariness. He says, be willing. And I, I know from experience, as, as soon as I decide to serve, to do my very best, the Lord honours it because he says, now you get it. Now you understand my spirit's on board, I'm a great equipper, let's go. So I think, I mean, there's a lot of things, but pride and mere duty, I think, are enemies of good godly leadership. Be willing, be humble. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thanks, James, and thanks for unpacking that passage tonight. Good Super day. helpful. We'll look forward to hearing some more from you soon.